1: Welcome to the Donald Thompson Podcast. I Have with me today a good friend of mine and guest, Kendrell Felder. And uh, Kendrell is uh, chief of staff at Cisco in their cybersecurity division.
2: And Kendrell, welcome aboard, man. Hey, appreciate it, Don. I- I'd add one more uh, adjective to your name: mentor. Don- don't try to cut <laughs> me short there. Hey, well, oh, the advice. <laughs> well, you're 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 too kind. You're 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 too kind. One of the things I like to do,
1: Kendrell, when we introduce folks to our audience tell a little bit about your story just a little bit about background brothers sisters growing up so that when we're talking the audience is talking
2: to a friend and yeah. uh, and, and and not just the name on a on an email yeah yeah absolutely uh, it, it's always cool for me to tell my story because people assume that because i went to duke my story isn't what it is right Uh, But but to your point, DT, I I was born in Trenton, New Jersey, very inner city environment, if you will. And and I'll share some of these details because I've actually started sharing them internally at Cisco here recently, because I think it's important that a lot of people understand that this finished product, if you will, wasn't always in this state. And so that the inner city environment in Trenton, New Jersey, born to a a 16-year-old mother, uh, being candid, uh, father was a, a drug dealer and i learned a lot i actually grew up with my mother i am the oldest of three siblings i have a younger brother by about eight years younger sister by about seven years and it was always a, a journey i would call it because i was growing up with a mother so close in age oftentimes we lived with uh, my grandmother and you know the aunts and uncles and everybody under one roof and experiencing life together and uh, around five, we moved down to Wilson, North Carolina. Uh, very rural town, but uh, just like most towns in the South, have uh, the good sides of the tracks and the bad side. I came from the latter, and uh, growing up in that environment taught me a lot. And I, I attribute a lot of those experiences to the success I've had today. In that, you know, from a very early age, I was tasked with things like taking care of my sisters. Cleaning the house uh, to to a, a perfection a state of perfection, as you probably well know d t uh taking care of community lawns, taking care of all our lawn things of that nature, so having that type of responsibility at an early age I think helped to mold me, but you know everything wasn't rosy. I experienced things like you know domestic violence with my mother, seeing her being shot at, you know drug abuse, things of that nature. But around uh, 12 or 13, really got into athletics. I, I sort of hit my stride. Uh, basketball was always my first love, so I did a lot of travel basketball around that age. But moving into high school, I actually picked up football my sophomore year. And people find it really hard to believe that, you know, I ended up playing Division One and didn't play until 10th grade. And that was really attributed to a lot of friends that I had close to me who kept me motivated to uh, dive into the sport, but also the coaching and leadership uh, really helped me to understand that this was a a potential ticket out of my current situation, right? And so not thinking about it just from an athletic perspective, but a life perspective was a big thing for me at that point. You know, ironically enough, at the same time, the biggest hardship that I've had in life, to be honest was you know one of those domestic violence bouts, ended up with my mother in the hospital for around six months, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the crazy part is my father went to jail that same exact weekend for what would be 15 years. And so at 15 years old, there was this, this homeless black kid trying to figure out how to fend for himself and his baby sister, right? And I, I learned an invaluable life lesson at that point because I was depending on family to take care of me right my my mother's gone my father's gone i expect somebody to step up and say hey kendra you can come live with us that didn't happen right so I, I had to figure out how to put my sister in a situation where she would be okay and then i ended up having to live with a family friend until my mother got out of the hospital and so that was an invaluable lesson that if you want something out of life you got to figure out how to make it happen on your own because regardless of how close you think people are to you uh, when, when the situation gets uh, difficult, it's typically not that many people in your corner, right? And so I'll sort of stop there and allow you to dive deeper or, or switch gears, oh, but gosh. That's, hey, that's Kendall in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, man. One, um, just so it's said out loud and on tape, man, I'm proud of you. Thank and, you. you know, a lot of people let those circumstances create a negative mindset about the future, right. right? So the question that I have for you is, those circumstances were not ideal. Right. There's nothing, there's nothing in, in the books of parenting that prescribe what you went through. Right. How did you keep that focus forward, chasing your dreams and, and growing forward and not let it make you so bitter, right. right? That it that it held you back.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's funny because you and I used to have these discussions one to one. I liked nice things, DT. And and that's the dead, the honest truth. I, I always liked nicer things. And so for me going through those experiences, you know, nothing that I'm proud of, but I, I had experienced a lot of the quote unquote success my father had had when I would go stay with him. And I would see some of the, the glitz and glamour and I always said to myself, I wanted those things on my own and I wanted to do it in, in a legitimate way. Right. And I wanted to, I wanted to be somebody and do great things. And so during those times for me, it was more of an exploratory phase where I had to figure out what my path to greatness was going to be, right? There was no room for failing. And and I still feel that way to this day. So to your point, I, I didn't get negative because I knew ultimately what I wanted and I knew there were paths to get there. I just had to figure out where that path was. I mean, that's powerful. What my path to
1: greatness is.
2: And one of the things that
1: we all have to push through. Is making sure that we have the self-image that God gave us, not the one the world tries to put on us. Absolutely, right. And, Absolutely. and that's a and that's a fight based on the narrative, based on all those different things that can come at you. And you were able to keep your eye forward in what you could become, right. Right? To, right? To to motivate it through. Now, in high school, in the sports piece, you use sports to be a ticket out. Yep. Yeah. But was it football, basketball? How did you make that choice? Did you do yeah. both? Like, how did you know which one was going to be
2: the one yeah. to kind of push and accelerate it forward? Well, I, I think the college coaches made that choice for me. <laughs> it, it was not something that, you know, uh, I was able to go Division One in basketball. No knock on Division Two and Division Three schools, but that was, that was more where I was from a basketball standpoint. And I was, I was even pretty good in track. But as you know, that the track dollars aren't the same as uh, football. So uh, I would say fate played out as it was supposed to in that regard. Hey,
1: listen, one of the things, you know, I I tell people all the time, my college career was different. You actually went to Duke and played football. Right. I went to East Carolina and practiced football. (laughs) Hey, man, practice is the hardest part. Yeah, I was was a practice team (laughs) All-American. that is good stuff to kind of bring us forward now moving from Wilson going to college at Duke Duke is a not all white but a pretty white institution yeah if you can be recruited to go division one ACC that's a highly competitive division in football yeah why did you choose Duke
2: of the other options what made Duke the best choice for you yeah, absolutely. So what what I didn't call out, and I, I don't really speak to very much, but as a kid, academics always came naturally to me. I, I got I have a list of awards and recognitions throughout my elementary, middle, high school years that I rarely talk about, but they were things that I essentially found passion in, and as I would pursue them, I'd get recognized for my proficiency in those areas, I'd say. And so as the, the decision came about as to where I would go to school, I got offers from places like UNC, Maryland, Army, all great institutions. Uh, You know, I'll poke fun at UNC, but, but ultimately I know it's a great academic institution, right? But for me, I grew up understanding the cachet of the Harvards of the world and Yale's and Duke and things of that nature. And I knew that I didn't know anyone who looked like me who had been to Duke, right? And as I started to think about things like that and the types of lifestyle that education affords one, it became very clear to me very early on where I wanted to go because of what it would do for me after football. Again, I, I like nice things, so I knew football wouldn't last forever, and I would have to use my mind eventually to, to drive my life.
1: No, that's powerful. My dad's a 30-year retired football coach, and he would always tell me that all of us at some point hang the cleats up. Yep, yep. And what are you going to do then? Some it's after high school, some they play some college, some some years in the NFL, but everyone has to hold them cleats and put them up on the pedestal. And Mm -hmm. what are you going to do then? And it's pretty powerful that you thought about in choosing an institution, both the athletics, the academics, but also what it was going to do for you after. Right. right? And, you know, the thing that I wrote down as you were talking is the brand matters. Yes. Right. And you wanted to find something that could help your brand after school. Right. So you could go chase the the different things. Tell me a little bit about your experience on campus. Right. So those are the reasons you chose it. Yeah. All of a sudden you're in this institution, you're moving from a small town to a larger city, Durham, North Carolina. Tell me about how you navigated that educational environment in that, in
2: that mostly white environment. Not well to start. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. uh, That that first semester was tough. Right. Because not only, was it a culture shock, but I broke my ankle the first week of camp. And so, you know, it, most freshmen who are scholarship athletes going into, into those environments have had a lot of relative success, right? And so to be humbled that way and be in a completely new environment where you don't necessarily understand how it works was, was very tough. And so I'll, I'll tee up my answer by saying I ended up double majoring, if you will, in cultural anthropology, but then also did Duke's Markets and Management Studies program. And what that did for me was, on an on anthropological side, help me understand how to immerse myself into different cultures and be successful, ultimately. Uh, help you understand how to communicate, what nonverbal cues look like, what are people's value systems and what drives them. How do you forge mutually beneficial relationships? Things of that nature. Uh, And ultimately how you learn to respect people who aren't like you. Because I, I think you see that as a big problem in our country now and in the world now, if I'm being honest. And so for me to be able to learn how to do those things in a, in a structured, uh, systematic way was, I would say critical to the success that I've had to this day. So when, when everybody wants to poke fun at the liberal arts student who, who focuses on culture anthropology, I'd say think twice about that because there's a lot more value that comes out of understanding people than, than most realize.
1: Oh man, that's a powerful answer. And like interesting, like how you figured out to merge yeah. Right, both the business side and the people side, right yeah. that's what you wanted to do and become
2: that's pretty powerful yeah and it was it was funny because uh, being in that was one of my classes first semester and hated all the other classes, right, but I remember being in that one every Tuesday and Thursday thinking to myself uh, this is something that I really need uh in my life to become successful so that ended up that ended up being the major that I went with ultimately no that is that is really cool so now let's fast
1: forward a little bit and all of those things are, are really, really interesting and, and I wish we had a lot, a lot more time. How did you get to Cisco? How did you choose cybersecurity? What does the chief of staff of cybersecurity do? Like it yeah. sounds cool. Like, yeah. I, I, so you win that part. Right. <laughs> like, like it sounds like amazing. But tell me a little bit about that, that career journey, that Duke MBA yeah. and, then, and then merging that with some of the things you're doing now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start at the the front end of the career journey. Coming out of undergrad, I, I didn't really know what I didn't know uh, in terms of career paths. What I did know was I was uh, relatively sharp and, and I understood numbers. And so for me, that meant I would go into a role of financial services, sales, right? I was pretty good with people, understood how numbers worked. I'll go there. And so I started uh, as a financial representative at Northwestern Mutual and ended up quickly transitioning into a role at RTI International where I worked Uh, directly with folks like the CFO there, the treasurer, the controller. And so for a 24, 25-year-old kid, that experience was invaluable because not only were they giving me more tactical assignments where I could sharpen my business skills, also got to sit in on those meetings. And so to hear how a large company is run at that phase in your career, I don't think you can put a price tag on that. It was like pre-business school for me. But that was one of the things that they always uh, encouraged me to go back and do. And so ultimately went back to business school at Fuqua, uh, wanted to get more of a, a well-rounded business education. So I focused on uh, strategy as one of my concentrations and then entrepreneurship, as you well know, is my other concentration. And so for me, that that really was a combination of understanding, from a strategic standpoint anyway, how all of the functions culminate into ultimately driving a strategy and what it takes to make that successful. Uh, but then also on the entrepreneurial side, it's the, very much the same thing, except it's your skin in the game, right? You, you, you eat what you kill. And so getting that experience from a business school perspective, doing my internship at PNG I think really helped me a lot in terms of what business should look like outside of just the financial realm. I came out, went into banking, did product management there, did some sales or led a sales team. And then I got that entrepreneurship itch. And so that's where our paths crossed back in uh, 2014, worked on a couple of ventures together. And as we were coming out of the, the last venture, Creative Allies, Cisco actually called me with an opportunity. And I, I remember having this conversation with you. I said, I, I can't believe this it's a real thing. And essentially what they told me was they were looking for an athlete and not the athlete in the physical sense, because clearly I was that, but an athlete in the the mental sense, someone who had enough capacity to understand emotionally where they were and how they were responding to things. But also from a business standpoint, to help them understand their regulatory posture as it relates to cybersecurity and the technology posture as it relates to cyber as well. Right. So we were going into these conversations really trying to see how we can help these countries transform where they are from a digital standpoint. And with that experience, it dawned on me that uh, in, in terms of big companies like Cisco, I needed to run a large organization. And so uh, this chief of staff opportunity presented itself. And now we deploy X number of technologies throughout the enterprise. We have teams in China, India, and the US. And you know, as of literally last week, I, I got promote it into a role where I can't go into too many details, but uh, the, the size of my, my organization will, will triple and the budget that I have will, will grow exponentially. So I'm really excited about catching up with you on that as
1: well. Oh, man, that's awesome. And, and, and yeah, I won't press any further, but man, yeah. like, I'm just smiling ear to ear because you always had the work ethic. You certainly had the mind, the intellectual capacity to do big things. Yeah. And you needed your dream shot. Yeah. Right. Like you, you just needed your moment. It wasn't right. a function of. And, and this gets back to the diversity and inclusion conversation that I'll pivot into. Think about the talent that people are missing when they're not looking for the next Kindle Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Right. And, yeah. and and it's not about. Yes, diversity and inclusion is important. It feels good. It's the right thing to do. But it's yeah. also the right thing to do for your business to yeah. expand the number of people that you're talking to recruiting, promoting, mm-hmm. right? If you have a global dream in terms of your particular sector. So let yeah. me ask this, things are going well for you, corporate yeah. America, what are the, some of the things, what are some of the advice that you would give for people of color that are the only in the room, yeah. right? That don't understand like you've learned how to navigate these, these different
2: situations. Right. What kind of advice would you give? Oh man, it all starts with, with yourself quite honestly. And the, the first thing I would say is own the fact that you're the only one in the room. DT, I've literally been to conferences in Europe or Singapore or whatever country where there are thousands of people there and I'm literally the only black man in the room. And you know what I do with that? I, I go up and represent my organization. I, a lot of times talk about my background. I help people talk through their problems. And after about five minutes into a conversation, I'm not the only Black guy in the room. I'm the guy in the room who can help people solve problems, right? And so always so, something you taught me, and, and it's, it's such a little thing, but it's such a big thing in, in reality, always have an opinion, right? When, when people are talking to you about problems or issues or whatever it may be, have an opinion on that because your opinion may be a blind spot in the way they've been thinking about it. And so... Uh, leveraging that that advice you've given me has helped me in a lot of rooms that I've been in, for sure. I mean,
1: I use a term, it's a sports analogy, but when I think about my career and the people I've been able to work with, scoreboard matters. Yeah. When you deliver results, right? it helps you navigate. And so a lot of people think about what the organization should do to make them more comfortable. And right. that's true. Yeah, What the organization should do so that there are more minorities in leadership positions. That is also true. Yeah. But there's also a personal responsibility component to deliver results so that you can impact what the company does in hiring so that you can impact what the company does in promoting people because you become the example of what they want more of.
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I'll, I'll pull that thread a little more when i worked in my first job in cisco uh, where i was able to travel and, and meet with these governments and, and large companies through my work there i, I was able to impact about a, a billion dollars of business for cisco right and so you think about the reality of that that's a, a pretty big number and when i was doing those things i would hear my leadership team celebrate the the victories for the organization but a lot of times i was a bit apprehensive in telling people that i was the one behind it, and as I started to share the work that I had done with other executives or other leaders, you could almost see their eyes just like glaze over with amazement of, oh my goodness, you did that? And so to your point, it it is about uh, the scoreboard. And uh, another piece of advice I would give people in positions like mine is don't, don't sell yourself short. Talk about the wins that you've had, because regardless of how big or small, if they met or exceeded the expectations that were set, then you did your job, right? That is powerful. When you think
1: about, let's take it macro a little bit and look at our country and the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor, and, and, and. Right. Right? How has that affected you? How have you dealt with those emotions and those ups and downs what are what are some of the things you've been thinking and feeling in this moment that
2: you know this this racial moment, if you will, uh, in our country? Oh man, I, I don't think we have enough time to to go through the the full answer there. But in reality, DT, th- there are several emotions associated with it. I, I think the first one you get, or I get at least, is hurt. Right, that the sadness that comes with seeing people that look like us get. Killed for, for no good reason, right? Even if they were in the wrong in the situations that they were in, death wasn't the penalty for those crimes. And so to, to see people get unjustly punished the way that they have on video and no justice be served for it, there's a lot of hurt that comes with that. The, the second feeling that, that comes shortly thereafter, maybe a, a second or two, is uh, is anger. Right. Because once the sadness subsides, it is, well, why why would people feel that way towards me that have never even had a conversation with me? They've never taken the time to get to know me. They are basing their thoughts of what I am on my skin color. Right. And the anger that I get out of that, because I know and and not even being arrogant, I know individually, I probably accomplished more than 99 percent of people. But but if someone looked at me on the street in basketball shorts and Jordans, they assume I was a thug. That makes me angry because I work hard like everybody else, but I have to, I have to, I'm, I'm guilty until proven innocent in a lot of ways. It's a parallel to what I'm trying to say, but I have to reverse the stigma of what people think about me versus them seeing me and thinking I'm a great guy, you know? So in terms of how I feel and you know, how I've handled it. No, that's how I feel, how I've handled it. I've been boisterous, DT, I've been, I've been very boisterous in a positive and an objective way. But I, I show up to executive meetings and I talk about the fact that, you know, uh, X percent of employees at you know my company or in my organization look like me. And that, that percentage isn't enough. And we need to figure out ways to give people opportunities. And I'm not talking about, to your point, just uh, setting up programs that that pull people in for no good reason. There is talent. There is Black talent that exists in America. And I am challenging my leadership team and our executive team at Cisco to start to find that talent and deploy them into our leadership infrastructure. Because one of the things that I struggle with, quite candidly, and I've said this so it's, it's no secret, is when I look up the the leadership stack, I don't see many people that look like me. And so a lot of times when you get a person like me who's done a lot in their career, doing well at the moment, and they start to look up the chain and they don't see anyone like them, they start looking for organizations that do have people that look like them up the stack because they know they haven't hit the ceiling.
1: Yep, I mean, you make a powerful analogy in terms of the success of the business long-term, because there's one thing recruiting and investing in people of color. But if they don't see a future for their dream, they're on the move. Yep, (laughs) absolutely. And so that comes back to the competitive advantage in the talent wars for companies that really lean into diversity and inclusion. Absolutely. And one of the things that in the work that we're doing and, and what we're learning is that there is an appetite now for change. And that's the thing that keeps me optimistic is a lot of the leaders that I'm talking to are, are much more forwardly thinking about what do we do? Not Mm -hmm. just the why we should do it. Right. Just the if, but what should we do to get some results? And that's encouraging. What would you recommend kind of broadly to business leaders, to, to people that are out there that can help them in that sourcing of talent, help them be more accommodating, not accommodating in terms of lower the bar, but empathetic,
2: Yeah. yeah. if you will, right, to people that are different than them. Absolutely. And, and I'll take this, this opportunity to, to state that while no company is going to get it right to start with, I, I applaud Cisco for taking the steps that they have here recently because they, they have put a lot of effort into it. It's a matter of refining, to your point, and, and really understanding... Uh, how to, to drive that change, but but I applaud the, the work that has been done. Uh, in terms of what I'd recommend, it's very similar to what I've talked to our leadership team about, and that is, yes, we want to create a, a pipeline of talent. We want to attract talent, but once you get it in the door, you have to have the right culture in place, right? And, and that's just not, oh, we we accept Kendrell, he's a Black guy. It is, you need a culture where people are looking at each other as teammates, right? Ultimately trying to drive towards a common goal. Because if we all work at the same company, we're all working towards that company stock price. Make no mistake about it, right? And so I think that's a key part of it, the culture. And the second part is real opportunity. And what I mean by that is it's not just about a job it's about exposure. It is about acknowledgement. It is about, and when I say exposure, that, that means opportunities to engage with leadership so that the leadership can understand that, hey, this person's actually pretty talented. And then the visibility from the standpoint of once this person does the project and they do it well, let's celebrate it. Because again, people need to know that these types of people can be successful. And so when I think about what should be done in organizations, it's putting in place programs that allow people to get that visibility, to get that exposure and ultimately be able to uh, drive success like everyone else.
1: Oh man, that is, uh, that's good stuff. I mean, I don't have, any, I really, you know, I'm always for a phrase, but I don't have anything to add. To that. <laughs> like that was, that, was, that was well stated. When you think about leadership, And you've now worked at a lot of different companies with a lot of different folks from small companies, entrepreneurial, Cisco, obviously is a very large company, P&G and different things. Talk to me a little bit about leadership qualities that you admire and want to
2: emulate. Yeah. So the the first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, empathetic, right? And not in the sense of feeling sorry for anyone, but in the sense of understanding what the task is that's being asked of your employees, and then understanding how you can give your employee the resources needed to become successful, right? And so that that empathy for me is a big thing. The the second thing that comes to mind is decisiveness. You're always going to have a thousand options to choose from. And you, you can choose 500 of those thousand options and you'll spend all your budget trying to do everything. But a leader who can be decisive and, choose to move on a strategy in a very pragmatic way. Over the years, I've seen that that puts the team at ease, if you will, because they know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, They understand what the objectives and goals are and everybody's marching towards that same North Star. And the the last feature that I I really uh, admire in leaders is uh, their ability to learn different areas. And, And that's what I've always admired about you Uh, Your ability to sit down with someone, pick their brain, do a a real discovery session and help them work towards a a solution ultimately. And and I think when you couple those three things that the empathy side to where someone's understanding what they're asking of people, someone who can make strong decisions and then someone who can pick up information from different sources and stakeholders to make uh, the best possible outcome. Those are those are the things that I think help drive leaders in, in organizations like Cisco. That's awesome.
1: No, that is really, really good. One of the things I wanted to ask is we pivot back a little bit to your MBA career. I've always had in my mind, right? Why do you need an MBA, right? Like just go build a business or something. You know what I mean? We've talked about this, so I kind of, like, what's the big deal, right? And you know, obviously if you don't have one, like you gotta make up reasons why it's not as, you know, what what do you need that for? Yeah. What are some of the takeaways from that MBA experience that you bring to your work today that helps you think better, stronger, that would give people that value prop of why they should consider?
2: Yeah, there are several things that come with an MBA. The the first, uh, for me personally, and remember I I said my advice to someone in a room of a thousand people would be to own it. it. It's gonna be very similar in an MBA program, but for me, it was a good measuring stick. Uh, i I'd always thought I was talented i'd always thought I was smart i'd always thought I was good with people, but you can best believe all three of those notions will be tested when you get into a business school environment and so for me, uh, it was an opportunity to prove to myself that I was just as good as anybody else who were considered you know uh premier talent in, in my age group so that that was a part of it uh once I was able to prove I was as good as everyone else the the comfort that came with knowing I could consume and uh, excel at the types of content that was being thrown at us. That was assuring, right? Because you're taking things like advanced operations classes, you're taking uh, statistic courses, you're taking all these accounting courses, and they actually give you more work than you can possibly do with the hours in a day. And so they make you figure out where you're going to spend your time, which is very much real life. I have work I'm supposed to be doing right now, but I know what I can triage. (laughs) Uh, But but that that was the second piece of it. And then third, and probably most importantly, if I'm being honest, is those people that you're working with over those two years, you don't realize it at the time, but one, you are helping them understand who you are and proving that you have talent. But then once you all graduate, you're gonna go off and become respective leaders. If you're in a program, a top tier program, you're gonna go off and become leaders in your respective industries and companies. And so you immediately have a network who's gonna be fast risers and people that you can leverage to pick their brains for problems that you have or for opportunities that you may have. So those are three of the, the top things that really resonate with me, but the, the list could go on forever. Kendall. that's powerful. And I think you mentioned the one that when we talked about
1: this over time that resonated with me the most is that network. Yeah. And, and I've benefited that from knowing you, like once, (laughs) once once somebody told me the reason the MBA was like this network, I was like, that makes perfect sense. I need to find me some MBAs and get into their network. (laughs) But the, the other thing that I know from, from the folks that, that I've worked with that, that also makes sense is that ability to consume large amounts of data, right. And construct meaningful insights pretty quickly. Yeah. Large amounts of data. And so that's a that's really a good, a, a good, good synopsis. I love your statement. I have a lot of work to do, but I know what I can triage. Yep, Right. And that is a time management nugget that people can use no matter what they're doing. Personal life, family, business. Right. All, all that good stuff. I don't know if you remember this. I won't name names, but we'll, let me see if I could get a reaction. Do you remember the meeting we were in? And the guy said, what is EBITDA?
2: <laughs> I do. I do remember that meeting.
1: <laughs> so we were in a meeting. The audience, we were in a meeting, and Kendrell has an MBA. Kendrill's good at <laughs> accounting. I'm none of these things. And so the guy in the meeting looks at me and goes, Don, let's just talk about EBITDA a little bit. And, you know, I, I know that you guys really might not know what EBITDA is, but, Don, let's meet and you have a conversation. <laughs> I'm like, I, I know what it is, but like Kembro's uh-huh. like a genius. <laughs> man, that was the epitome, right, of prejudice and stereotyping yeah. Yeah. And, and and just and just taking people lightly. But man, that 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 yeah. was a that was a funny moment in 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 time. Last question that I would ask of you, and one, I appreciate you being with us and and, and enjoyed catching up as I always do. Mm-hmm. If you had a magic wand, what would you change in
2: the world? Oh man. This feels like one of those pageant questions. I I don't know if I would I've thought about what I would change if I could change one thing. And and this is with a magic wand. This this probably isn't pragmatic, but I change suffering, right? I take suffering out of the world. And and I don't even know what that looks like in practice. But I know when I think about all the things I'd like to change, whether it's hunger, whether it's wealth disparity, whether it's you know, people dying of sickness the one thing that is in common across all those threads are people suffering, right? And so if I could change one thing, that's what it'd be. Oh, that's powerful. Kendril, I am appreciative
1: and more than that, like I'm cheering for you. Like I'm just like, as I see you continue to rise, like I'm just, I'm, I'm really, really happy, but I'm not surprised. Thank you. Right, I'm really happy for you, but I'm not surprised.
2: And I just appreciate you keep taking my phone call. <laughs> well, well, I'm actually going to try to get some time of yours here soon, because I want to catch up with you on some things.
1: It <laughs> uh, sounds, sounds good, man. This podcast is edited and produced by Earphones. If you're looking for more information on how full-service podcast production can amplify your voice, build your community, visit EarFluence.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on the Donald Thompson Podcast.